This episode is supported by Sidetracked Magazine. Hello and welcome to Between the Mountains Adventure Podcast. Delivering in-depth interviews, expeditions and adventures. Be sure to check us out on social media and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. This week's guest is Jenny Tuff. It's a bit of tough love, but I always say to myself, your problems aren't real. You know, your problems suck. Like they are chosen problems. Like I had one once I was doing the Silk Road mountain race in Kyrgyzstan. I was always banging my head against whether or not I should drop out. I mean, this race was so hard. There were a hundred riders started and only 32 made it to the finish. It was just so hard. I decided to give myself a test. You know, if you really can't do this, if it's really too hard for you, then that means that you need help. You need to go find the nearest adult and ask them to help you. And so I'd have to imagine in my head the scenario where I'd have to knock on the door of a yurt and tell them I need help because I'm in this massive mountain bike race and my SPD pedal got twisted. And so now my knee hurts and I'm tired and like none of the problems would sound very good spoken over the threshold of a yurt. I just thought... Your problems aren't real. Just keep riding your bike. Just shut up. Like, have fun. <laughs> Jenny Tuff is so widely respected in the outdoors community and well known of, and it comes with good reason. She's just about to finish running across a mountain range on every continent on the globe, which is just an insane feat to imagine. It's definitely putting my proud PBs of 10 kilometer runs to shame, that's for sure. But Jenny is so widely respected and renowned in the outdoors community, she's been on a few other podcasts before, so in this episode especially, we try to cover some topics and some questions that haven't been covered before, that explore a little bit further and a little bit deeper, whilst having a bit of a laugh as well. So, I hope you enjoy the episode. Listening back during the editing process, I remembered actually that during this, uh, that during this recording, I actually had a bit of a cold, so excuse me if my voice sounds a bit bunged up, I don't think you can recognise it too much, but, but yeah, I hope you enjoy it nonetheless. Before we dive into it, there's two things to mention. One, this episode is supported by Sidetrack Magazine, and it is such an incredible organization and outdoors magazine. They just bring stunning imagery, beautiful storytelling. You've got to check them out. I'll leave the link in the show notes to go and subscribe to their free weekly newsletter and also to their magazine. And if you're coming from the weekly newsletter, then hello, welcome, I hope you enjoy the episode, please do consider subscribing. And also before we get into it, I just wanted to say thank you to the people leaving uh, Apple Podcast ratings. Uh, first of all, I've noticed that in America they have a different system, so we've got a couple of ratings over there, including someone giving five stars say, saying that they spend a lot of time in the hills and there's a lot of great wealth of data in these episodes, in these podcasts, so thank you so much for saying that too. And we've also got a couple of other ratings on the UK one, including more recently from someone saying after such a long time out of traveling and creating memories due to COVID, this podcast has truly relived my experiences as well as visualized new ones, 100% worth your time. So thank you so much for saying such kind things. Um, But with no further ado, let's just get straight into the interview. So Jenny, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a total, total pleasure. I mean, people are kind of caught up on your whole running across a mountain range thing um, so far. You're onto the last one now, aren't you? Yeah, five five down. Just Europe left. 
Um, yeah, the, the same range that uh, Elbrus is on, I guess. Uh, yeah, well, that's, yeah, the Caucasus, um, they, they still remain plan A. I mean, we're doing this recording end of April. Um, and the COVID situation would definitely be that I couldn't do that right now. So I'm, I'm calling it plan A. And if by the time that August rolls around, I have to change that to a different European range that is a bit more feasible, then I'm, I'm ready to do that. So I'm just kind of mentally preparing myself for things could just change last minute. And that's cool. Yeah, like Will Copestake said on the on our previous episode, he, he goes, your, your second plan A. <laughs> My second plan A. I have a third plan A. Like, yeah, I just... Yeah, because he said no one wants to do a plan B, so you just call it second plan A. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's a really good concept. Yeah, but either way, I need to run across a European mountain range this summer. It has to happen. I've been working on this project for four years, and, you know, it's, it's time to go home, get this done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I mean... That's your most recent thing, but you did your first solo adventure when you were 21, cycling up to the Yukon. But when did your interest and passion for adventure begin? Uh, I guess I probably couldn't put the words on it. I wasn't really aware, but when I was a child, for sure. I mean, I grew up with the Canadian Rockies, so I got to spend quite a lot of time outside. Our family holidays did typically involve either camping in the Rockies or we actually sailed quite a lot. I lived on a sailboat when I was a kid, spent a year and a half on a 37 foot sailboat with my family sailing around the Caribbean. And yeah, at the time, like, you know, when you're a kid, I mean, I was between 10 and 12 years old. So I just thought these things were normal and I really enjoyed them, but I didn't look at them as something that you would list as one of your hobbies like I just thought that was what life was like so yeah I think the, the seed was planted pretty early for me uh, I mean jumping forward to now you know you've achieved so much more than a bike ride to the Yukon just a simple little old bike ride to the Yukon so tell us why do you adventure uh, a lot of reasons um, I guess for me I'm always I'm kind of driven by an excitement to know what's around the next corner and that's just innate in me. It's always been there. So I always am seeking the new. And, and that can be either the physical world. Like I want to travel a lot. I want to go to lots of different countries, cultures, environments, and see what they're like. But then there's also an internal side to that. You know, the way that I adventure is a way that I really do push myself physically and emotionally and put myself in these situations and environments where I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. So that's an adventure internally where you're going to discover new things about yourself and a human's ability to cope. So uh, I think that for me is that stoke of, of just wanting to know what else is out there. I think it's a perfect answer as well. Like that, that perfectly sort of personifies. I think a lot of people have that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. La landscapes are a key for me. I just want to see, like, I don't know, see pretty views, I guess. <laughs> Totally. Yeah. I mean, that's a completely valid reason. Climb a mountain just to look at other mountains. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like you've talked um, and discussed before about lessons on solo expeditions uh, and about taking full responsibility for decisions. Uh, do you <laughs> think this discipline has carried on into everyday life? Yeah. And that was for me, that was the biggest thing that I got out of that first bike ride when I was 21 years old. And I didn't know anything. I mean, it was wildly irresponsible that I even did this trip because I didn't know 
like I, I did it on clipless pedals and I didn't know how to use them. I didn't know how to change. Like I found out right before I left that there was an inner tube inside of my tire. That's how much I knew about bikes and how they worked. I was like, oh, wow, that's so weird. Like I knew nothing. I was just so dumb. And just, you know, the bravery that a 21 year old has. And so I had to learn how to do things. And I think as a young woman, that was very much the first time in my life where there had never been an adult around, you know, the first big mechanical I had, I was way away from phone signal. And we're talking more than a day's ride from the next phone signal, let alone human population that can help you. And so I really was completely isolated for the very first time in my life. Cause up until then, 21 years old, there's always been an adult on hand. You could always at least call your dad and say, what should I do? I've broken something. And it was so empowering. I mean, before it was empowering, there was a big cry episode where I sat down on the side of the road and just cried because I'd broken my bicycle. But, you know, eventually I had to fix my problems. And that was so empowering. And now that's, I mean, that's why I'm so passionate about encouraging other people to adventure and especially young people, especially women and girls, because that just teaches you that you can do hard stuff and you can figure things out and you can do it yourself. And I think I'd never had that message before that trip. And I had to teach myself how to be self-reliant because I don't think it had been really encouraged in me as a, as a trait to have. Like, it's not like a nice girl trait, I think, to be that independent. So it has definitely seeped into every aspect of my life. And I do think adventures always give me lessons that are way bigger than the specific adventure. They are things that teach me about myself, about what's important to me, about how to live and how to grow. So yeah, I mean, the metaphors you get from adventures are just endless, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. With so much self-development coming from, you know, the more difficult and challenging situations, do you find that you kind of secretly crave disaster or, or do you just take it as it comes? Yeah, that's a funny question because obviously you plan to do really well. You know, you you make sure that you don't get into these issues. I think it's a Amazon quote, which is adventure is just bad planning. <laughs> and like that's true like when the catastrophes happen like you've done something wrong to get there so yeah it, it's a funny question because I will try my best and work within the zone that I know I can survive but until something happens you are on a holiday you know like if things are just going swimmingly along nothing hurts you haven't had a cry about anything you haven't bled on anything then it's just kind of like you're having a really nice and there's nothing wrong with going on holiday just so we're clear I'm not using that as a derogatory term but there is a turning point in your holiday when it becomes an adventure yeah for sure I, I think you um you referred to them in the past haven't you as um bad holidays by design <laughs> yeah <laughs> pretty much yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean you're you're quite um you're quite a big advocate for solo and self-supported missions when you explore mountains or cultures. But, you know, a bit like when you called your dad when you broke your bicycle, have you had any adventures where you've thought, wow, I could really do with having a partner right about now? Yeah, definitely all of them. I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't, I don't have any regrets about the way that I do it because I do get so much out of the solo effort. But I mean, that is one of the biggest challenges is that you have to do it alone that you put yourself in this boat that you're going to go through loneliness and you're going to have to learn how to cope with that and you're going to go through periods where you just wish someone could help you someone could brainstorm a solution with you or someone could you know fix you when you you know had enough disasters that it would be nice to have a partner to walk you through them so 
yeah, all the time. I do wish someone was there. And that's, that's part of the lesson that I'm giving myself is, you know, you've got to get through this by yourself. It's, there's no use standing in this field wishing that your pal who was really good at this stuff was here to guide you through it. You're going to have to be the one who guides you through it this time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We, I got lost in the Cairngorms once with my partner and it, you know, it was just fine. Like really, really in the grand scheme of things, we weren't going to die. I could have retraced my steps and walked the, the very long way round back to the car park. Um, <laughs> but we left it too late to get out into, we did a Maya and Driesh, so not hard mountains. Um, right. we, left it, we left it too late. And the sun went down behind the mountain and we lost like sunlight. And just before the sun went down, uh. I could see what looked like a track or something. And we basically had to navigate through like the back end of twilight to this path, which turned out to be the right one, thankfully. Yes. But, you know, she she was freaking out and I was trying to keep my cool. And afterwards she said, you know, like, you know, it was good that you were there because it almost gave me permission to freak out myself. Because if you weren't there, I would have had to control it all. And sort of like coming full circle back to what you were saying, you know, like if by being on your own, you know, it's really handy to have a partner there and just to bounce ideas off of. But by being on your own, you have to, like you say, fix your problems. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful wisdom. I mean, if I'm in a group environment, I always get really self-conscious of this thing that I do. Like, I do put myself in the back seat. If we're going on a hike, I will be the last hiker in the group. I'll stay behind everyone and make sure everyone's doing the pace they want to do. Everyone's doing the things that make them happy. I'll let everyone make the decisions. Um I mainly do that because I want to make sure that the group is happy and I'm just stoked to be here. So I'm like, I'm not a very demanding person, but you know, that's not a very good way to, to grow and push up and to get the things that you want, you know? So I am very much the backseat person unless, you know, like, unless things go wrong and I realize I'm the most experienced and I need to step up, but otherwise I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not the alpha. So if I go alone, then I have to be the alpha, like the alpha of my own solo journey. So then I get that opportunity to to be the one that takes charge. You'd be in your movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was going to ask actually, when you said you're at the back of back of you know group hikes, I was going to say, is that to give yourself a break or is that to look after people? So, yeah, it sounds like a bit of both, maybe. Yeah, a bit of both. I mean, yeah, I think if I go out with my friends, I'm kind of like I'm just happy that we're outside. Like I'm not super objective driven person. I'm just happy to be here. So I'm a bit like you know, I've I've had my time in the sun. I've done a lot of hard things. I've had a lot of playtime. I'm really just here to hang out with you guys. So we'll do your pace. I'm not here to drive and make all the calls. Yeah. Uh, diving into a bit of mindset now too, when you're facing quite a hard mountain pass or something similar, what's going through your head while you're trying to convince yourself to step up to the mark and get it done? Uh, I think I'll start by being super intimidated and it never goes away. I think I always thought that by the time that I reached this level in my life that I could look at any mountain and go like, I've got this, but I don't like, I have a lot of respect for the mountains. Um, I've been pushed back enough times and I still, I do have a real confidence struggle that I don't see myself in the group of people that I'm in, you know, like I don't see myself to be on that level. So I do look at the big mountains and think, oh gosh, that's not for me. I can't do that. Um, and then I just start plugging away and I do try a bit of positive mindset where I say things like, you've got this, you've got this, you've got, this. and I just keep on repeating that. And, you know, eventually you get to the top and you just feel like, I don't think there's any better feeling than that of going from that total self-doubt to suddenly standing at the top and looking back and going, yes, I'm amazing. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's um interesting that you mentioned about the experience as well, because I was going to ask when you're when you're in those situations, how much do you think that intimidation and that fear is real and genuine? And how much do you think is just like a stress response, even though your experience tells you that you'll overcome it? You know, I'm in this, I realized I'm in a really freeing place in my adult life that I can pretty much always say I've been through worse. And that's great and freeing because it means like this probably won't be as bad as that other time that I'm thinking of right now. Um, But then it also does, there's a lot of fear that is remembered. Like, oh, remember that time that I got pushed back really hard? Remember that time that I fell off? Remember those? And those do go through my mind. So I do that's what I think I mean when I look at mountains and I do have total respect for how hard they're going to be. I don't look at them and think I'm going to dominate this. <laughs> I look at them and go like, I can see where all the places where this could go wrong. And I have to be aware of those things or they will go wrong. And so it's, it's a bit of a respectful way of looking at them, but yeah, then there's also the, the confidence issue. So there's a bit of both. Okay. So that first one sounds like it might be, you know, it's, it's genuine, but only through, I guess what a, a necessity to have that otherwise you take things for granted and, and make mistakes yeah you can I mean especially going solo you can get sloppy really easily um and especially because the stuff that I do is typically long endurance hours so if you're many days into one of these the likelihood that you're going to drop the ball somewhere that you're just going to get nonchalant about yeah no one's watching yeah, totally. And, you know, if you just let your mind drift or you just start to get a bit cocky about what you've already come through, then that's where, for me, that's where the problems start to happen. So I'm I'm always kind of like bringing myself back down to the, no, this could go wrong. Like respect the environment, go slow. Like don't, it's not in the bag until you get there. Yeah, exactly. It's not done till it's done, is it? Yeah. You've experienced cultures just all over the world. And when you think back through the highlights, what are some moments of kindness that really stick with you even today? Uh, So many. And I think that's um, one of the biggest things that travel is so important to me. Um, I was trying to think of examples the other day for all the types of households I've been invited into. And it was something that just brought so much joy to me to think about all the living rooms I've sat in where someone has made me a cup of tea or coffee or whatever the local was like, you know, yurts, mud huts beautiful big houses every type of dwelling I think that people are using on this planet I've been invited into and that's just the most lovely thing and I have this theory that the more inhospitable the environment the kinder the people who live there will be you know it's just like this inverse relationship that if you're you know walking down a big city where everything's cruisy and fine no one's going to come up to you and invite you in for a cup of tea and make sure that you're okay But if you're at 4,500 meters altitude and the storm's coming in, you're absolutely going to be almost forcefully invited into someone's house and they're going to feed you and, you know, accept you as part of the family for a bit. And yeah, I just have so many countless memories of of people doing that and especially in mountain environments, just looking after me and showing me such a high level of hospitality. Um, And that's just, yeah, the thing that I can't emphasize enough when people ask me about travel to difficult places is that actually you're going to find wonderful people. Yeah, that's beautiful, isn't it? Like, like just so many moments. <laughs> like, mm. I mean, so you mentioned actually earlier on that about your sailing trip with your parents um, and, you know, and being homeschooled for a year. You, you said that when you got back to regular school, you kind of had to learn what the Spice Girls were and try <laughs> and fit in. Like, have you ever experienced like that similar imposter syndrome on any of your travels later in life? 
Yeah, um, I mean, I do kind of cut off. I think I'm just like that permanently now because I spend so much time away from media and television and shopping and know what any of the cool things are. Like, I couldn't tell you what's cool right now. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) And I've had a year of COVID to like even have time to do the research and I still haven't done it. Yeah, the first time I went to Kyrgyzstan, actually, I did a no news experience where I was just like, you know what? I'm in Central Asia, the news of... The North America and Europe, whatever's going on, it just won't affect me out here. And me knowing what's going on can't change the situation. So I'm just going to take this entire four weeks off any news. And I deleted every app that would give me any notifications of what was going on. And I just went totally blank. And I felt really irresponsible for doing it because I think you're taught in democratic nations to be really involved. And I always thought that was important. But I was like, you know what? I'm just going to take a break. And it was wonderful. I felt so good, like the instant removal of stress of just not knowing anything outside of your own little sphere. Like you can't live like that permanently. Obviously, I'm not advocating that. But man, just taking one month off, anything coming in was amazing. But then I came back and had no idea what anything was. (laughs) (laughs) Pandemic or pandemic? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, it's really liberating. I mean, at the start of the pandemic, you know, February, March time, uh, 2020, I was just, I was getting notifications all the time from BBC News and Sky News going pandemic, COVID update. And I actually just stopped all push notifications and it feels fantastic. (laughs) No, it really does. Like, tell me when I, when there's something actionable, but until then i I don't need the constant bombardment of like, this might happen. Here's an analysis on something that didn't happen. You know, just, it's, it's not all necessary. Yeah, yeah, I suppose really, if you can't control something, like stop getting involved in it, I suppose. I mean, yeah. like news of the variants, for instance, they could be so off-putting. You know, the, all of the media seem to really want to be able to tell you that this particular variant won't work with the vaccine. But I just think, well, until it's decided, until it's found out, there's no point reading it and you know, scaring myself, so. Exactly. And I'm also really cynical about that industry and how much of it is from just being quite sensationalist and making sure that you want to read it it? and send it to everyone. Yeah, exactly. It's revenue now, not newsworthy. Yeah. So I look at that stuff and I'm like, you're just trying to excite me and get me to send this to everyone. And I I don't want to play your game. I don't want to feel stressed. So yeah, I'm so cynical. (laughs) Well, I mean, talking about stress, good segue. Uh, (laughs) You talk about, do you talk, you, ah, you spoke about the Bolivian Andes being the hardest mountain range that you ran through so Mm. far and that it just hit you with everything. But what were some of the rewards that you got from that trip? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was type two fun and many occasions of type three fun. Like it was, it really did challenge me that one. Um, But yeah, I mean, the harder the effort usually the better the reward. So there were beautiful moments. And I think just because they were relief from feeling so stressed, they were really heightened. So, I mean, the Andes are just so beautiful. And every now and then when the thunderstorms would stop and just give me a break to be able to see where I was, like the views were just, they could make me cry. I remember once a condor took off right in front of me, like beautiful big bird of prey. There were so many like llamas and alpacas. And then above all, it was the people like, and that was one of the biggest fears. I kept on being told, you're going to get murdered. I got told that every day. You're going to get murdered, gringa. You don't belong here. You're too rich. You're going to get murdered, um, which is so negative, yeah. obviously. And <laughs> But then every village I would get to, and I'd get to these pueblos, and I'd be thinking, 
oh no, like I was told this Pueblo specifically was going to murder me and I, I don't want to be here. I want to make sure that no one sees me. But then these Chilitas, the women that live in the Aymara and Quechua communities, they were just always the most amazing hosts. They would just run screaming out of their houses like, gringa, gringa, gringa. And then they would just come and talk to me and they just wouldn't shut up. Like they were just so friendly. I've never been in a country where the women were so forward. And it was just so much fun. And so I would just meet these amazing people. And we just have these hilarious conversations in my terrible Spanish. And Spanish was a second language to them as well. And yeah, so like the rewards did come in drips. And then I'd get punched in the face again. But then there would be more rewards down the line. So it did, it did have moments that now, you know, maybe two years, almost two years recovered from that one. Now I look back at it and go, ah, oh, those are the days. <laughs> yeah, but it made you work hard for them though. It really did, yeah. Talking about adverse adversity like that, when you were teeing up to do your cycle to the Yukon, you know, so many people told you not to do it and that you couldn't do it, and yet you pressed on and realized, you know, just what you could achieve. Without this early exposure to adversity, do you think your experience with the Jean de Marie would have differed up there in the Atlas Mountains? Uh, I mean, definitely, it did help when that experience came up that. I was a very experienced person that I knew I could do these kind of things because I had. Um, I think that was, you know, that first one that you mentioned when I was 21, I got this intervention from my friends the night before I left to go to the Yukon. They said, don't go, you're going to hurt yourself. You know, when that, when anyone experiences that for the first time, when they can't say you're wrong because I've done it, you can only say like, you're wrong because I really think I'm going to be able to do it. Then, you know, it's not very strong. Um, that's hard. And I think that's a huge barrier. And that's why I always try to tell people don't, if someone comes to you with their crazy adventure idea or their business idea or whatever it is, and you think in your mind, they're certainly going to fail. Just make sure that's not the thing that you say to them. Say something like, wow, that sounds really hard. How can I help or whatever? Because when my friends did that, when they said, don't go, you're going to hurt yourself. I mean, I, I really believed them. I was like, well, I I don't even know how to ride a bike. I mean, they're pretty right. I mean, this is going to be a really dangerous trip. There are bears, like they said. There are really long stretches without any food. Like they, like they had as much knowledge about the thing as I did. So them saying it wasn't going to work, I was quite, quite likely to believe them. Whereas, yeah, that adventure, so running across the Atlas Mountain when the gendarmerie thought absolutely no way you can't do this, women will die. I could at least dig my heels in and say, no, you're wrong. I can do this because I'm good at this. I've done this a lot. I am really experienced and I'm going to do this anyway. So I at least had that confidence behind me that only experience was able to give me. And that's not my personality, by the way, like me showing down with the gendarmerie the way that I did, I was, I still look back on that and I'm like, what was I on that night that I was okay with <laughs> these 10 men with guns and I just was able to answer back at them and tell them where to go? Like, I don't know how I did that still, like adrenaline or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great that you did though. Like, then just sort of go, okay, <laughs> get in the jeep. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, all right, I'll just go home because you think I should. Okay. But I mean, I, I've chatted with uh, with a previous guest about this before. He he said he gets a lot of the time, you know, people saying, I wouldn't do it. So why would you want mm. to do that? And it seems to be that repetitive thing. So, you know, an intervention the night before the Yukon, same thing with the gendarmerie, you know, like they're just thinking, well, I wouldn't do that. So why why are you? Yeah, that's that's been one of the most important lessons I think I've learned is that 
um, when people project a negativity onto you, I mean, your instant reaction to anything like that is going to be to get your back up and get into a debate with this person or think like we're now at odds with each other. But typically when someone projects a negativity onto you, it's coming from their own fears. So you have to find a way to read between the lines and find out what are they really upset about? What are they really scared of when they see this? Are they just threatened by you because you're better than them? Or are they, they truly scared? Like is the thing that you're doing something that they really couldn't do because they're too afraid of it. And so they think you should be afraid of it too. And they feel the need to vocalize that. Um, and that's, I think that's the most important part for those conversations is to read between the lines and think, what are they really afraid of? And then now we can engage because now we're, we're speaking the same language. As soon as we know what it really is about, like, do you, you know, I had one of the most important conversations I think I ever had in my life was with one of the gendarmerie um, chiefs in one of the villages. Um, he took me out for coffee, which was lovely because I hadn't at that point been able to go for coffee in any of the cafes because the places I'd been to in the Atlas Mountains didn't allow women to go to cafes and restaurants. Uh, and this guy just didn't believe in that culture. Like, so he, the gendarmerie tend to be from the cities, but they get moved around a lot to work in the mountains. So he didn't, he wasn't really from that culture of Morocco. And he was like, Balder Dash, I'm taking you out for coffee. It'll be fine. And we sat down and it was, it was like going out for coffee with your enemy in a way, because his belief system about what women could do is against everything that I stand for and everything I was raised on. But we had this really honest conversation where I just said, look, this is where I come from. You know, my belief system is that women can be fully educated. Women can have jobs. Women can do sport. Women can do anything alone. I didn't have to ask I always kept on getting asked out there um, how my father or my boyfriend felt about me being there. Like if I had gotten permission and stuff and I was like, okay, well in my culture, that's not a thing. In my culture, women are, are humans too. Um, and just kind of laid that out for him and he listened. And then he said, okay, well, you know, I work in the police, which means I see the worst things that happen. And I have four daughters. And he said, when, every time that I see you, I think, think about my daughters who are close to you in age and it terrifies me because I wouldn't ever let them go for a run it just I just only think of the worst things that could happen to them if they went for a run and so we just had this really honest conversation with each other and I think it helped both of us especially that it was cross-cultural rather than it being a man who is from my own country and my own culture who I would have got pretty upset if he had told me he felt this way about women but because it was cross-cultural we were able to listen to each other I think in a better way and kind of just take notes from each other and understand, you know, no one changed their mind. I'm still pretty thoroughly confident that women should be able to do stuff. And I'm pretty sure he still doesn't let his daughters go running, but we, we at least learned about each other. And that was great to be able to just come to that level. And we didn't have an argument. It didn't go negative. It was just here. This is what I believe. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think you're right because uh, you know, with, if someone over this country, this this sort of end of the world, because there's there's even less excuse to have that mindset. But it does happen. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> and if they're listening to this, please unfollow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or change your mindset. <laughs> Stop telling me I can't do stuff. Stop explaining things to me. Yeah, but I mean, I suppose once you accept that someone's placing their limitation on you then you can kind of sift through quite efficiently and see if there's actually any golden nuggets of information they're giving you or if it's just like not a conversation worth having. Yeah, exactly. And I think it also, 
it just helps to calm you down because I think instantly when someone says, well, you shouldn't do this because whatever, like you're alone or you're a woman or whatever it is, as soon as you find out, it's not actually got anything to do with you. You don't feel so bad about it anymore. Like it's quite an insulting thing to do when, when, especially for women getting told they shouldn't do something alone because they're a woman. The implication being you are not strong enough to do this. That's a nasty thing to say to someone. Like we kind of take offense when we get spoken to that way and get put down in that way. Um, so it does get you down when you're constantly being told that you're not enough to do the thing. So once you get to that level, you realize this person's issues aren't actually to do with me specifically. They're not, you know, they would have said that to anyone. Then you can at least not have your your ego stamped on as badly as badly. I mean, it's still it still sucks, but, you know, it, it helps you move through it. Moving towards kind of visualization and planning now I, I really liked you talking about not being able to visualize a hard challenge before committing to it the question is do you think that's what has led you to boarding flights without having a plan when you get to the other side yeah I mean I definitely there's such a risk in that how do they say it like visit before you go where you over research something yeah and you know, I know a lot of people will just Google Street View through their whole thing, try to see how much they can they can understand. And, you know, it's nice to feel prepared, but, you know, I'm there for the adventure. Like we talked about, the external and the internal, like put myself in this environment and say, all right, figure it out, Jenny. And also like just, again, the experience. I mean, I think when I did my first expedition to run across Kyrgyzstan, I did plan it really thoroughly. I mean, there were spreadsheets involved in everything. Like I really knew what I was doing. That was also because I was so far out of my comfort zone that I had to do something to give it hope. Um, whereas now if I'm doing something that's at least relatively close to my comfort zone, then I, I really do like the just getting there completely fresh and taking everything on with a fresh pair of eyes rather than any preconceived notions about a place. Uh, and I think that that can sometimes lead to the best interactions with the culture. You just go there and say, like, I know nothing. Tell me stuff about yourselves. <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's the beauty of going with no expectation isn't it that's not a negative thing it's not like um the opening scene of dodgeball where uh, <laughs> i don't know if you've seen that film you know where um strong reference <laughs> yeah you know where vince vaughn goes goes i feel like if you have a goal you might not achieve it and you'll be disappointed <laughs> it's not yeah, like totally yeah. inspiring <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's not like that it's just that you know if you go and you think it's going to be amazing and it, and it just happens to not be that way, uh, then you'll be bummed. But if you go there thinking it's going to be rubbish, you might not see the good. So yeah, go. It's like just go with no expectation. Everyone's disappointed by the Sphinx. They built it up. They think it's going to be massive. I mean, it is impressive. Just in case anyone's listening thinking I'm not phased by the Egyptian wonders, I am impressed by the Sphinx. But it is that one like that everyone says. God, that's a, that's a place I haven't thought about for ages. And, you know, actually, that, as soon as it clicked, I was like, oh, God, yeah, my, my mum years ago went and she came back going, yeah, I was right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, anyone listening, of course you should go. Egypt is, has got a lot of cool things to see. I'm not saying that the Sphinx sucks. I'm just saying don't build it up too much. Yeah, don't make a day of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You talked about adventure really exposing in the most raw format your strengths and weaknesses. What do you think is the biggest thing you've learned about yourself? Uh, I think it, it changes every time. I mean, every big adventure gives me a big new lesson. But I think, and this is so cheesy because of my last name does kind of ruin it, but it is that I, 
you're just so much tougher than you think. And it's something that I just keep on coming back to, you know, what I, when we first talked about, if I stand at the bottom of a mountain, I look up it and I think, oh my gosh, this isn't for me. I can't do it. You know, I do that every time. And then when I do get to the finish line of something, I'm like so impressed with myself and so proud of myself. And that's, and that's quite like rare for me. That's not really the way that I normally live being proud of myself and being impressed by myself. I'm not like that at all. So when I do get those moments where I think, wow, I really persevered through that, or I really grew, or I figured that out and I didn't think I could, um, you know, that's, that's an amazing, empowering thing to learn. And I feel like I do have to keep on relearning that lesson that, you know, I'm tough enough for this I'm tough enough for that and keep on drilling that one home um, as life's challenges get bigger as you go on through your life. So um, yeah, I think that's, there's been a lot of really good lessons, but that's the number one that just keeps on slapping me in the face is you are tougher than you think you are. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose that, you know, the positive of having that um, view of yourself as well is you get to relive that achievement every time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like a goldfish. <laughs> yeah. Like Dory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <That's> no one. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, it's quite a privileged choice to struggle on purpose or have a bad holiday by design. As someone who is an outspoken advocate for larger world issues like feminism, how important do you think it is to be self-aware and take a step back to acknowledge how fortunate we are for these adventures? I love that question. Um, I saw a cartoon recently that was two cyclists and the comment was something like, you never notice the tailwind when you have it. And anyone who cycles know that that's totally true. And I think for those of us who are on the privileged side of the world, that is also pretty true. Um, and travel is something that I'm really grateful that I was exposed to third world travel at a very young age. So my privilege was exposed to me. And I think I wasn't, you know, it took me a long time to really recognize how deep my privilege is. But um having an awareness of that, having an awareness of the bigger picture and where your problems fit into them, I think is, is crucially important. I mean, I believe that we have to be here to keep on improving, making the world a better place, making ourselves better people. Uh, that should be on everyone's North Star is to leave a better place than they came into. So yeah, kind of going back to those things all the time and saying what's really important about this. I think that's just crucially important you know you're I always say to myself it's, it's a bit of tough love but I always say to myself your problems aren't real you know your problems suck like they are chosen problems like I had one once I was doing the Silk Road mountain race in Kyrgyzstan and I was always banging my head against whether or not I should drop out I mean this race was so hard there were 100 riders started and only 32 made it to the finish it was just so hard and when I kept on getting to the place that I thought this is too hard for you just quit um I decided to give myself a test and I've always held on to this one is you know if you really can't do this if it's really too hard for you then that means that you need help you need to go find the nearest adult and ask them to help you and so I'd have to imagine in my head the scenario where I'd have to knock on the door of a yurt and tell them I need help because I'm in this massive mountain bike race and my SPD pedal got twisted and so now my knee hurts and I'm tired and like none of the problems would sound very good spoken over the threshold of a yurt and I just thought your problems aren't real just keep riding your bike just shut up <laughs> like <Yeah>. have fun <laughs> yeah 
hi, this this thing I, I've purchased to come on by choice. Oh God, it's so tough. Could you help me out? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and last question before we get into some wrap up ones. With being so fortunate, looking back over your career so far, what is one moment that you would love to relive? To relive? Oh, um, well, that's a really good question. You really stumped me with that one. You know what? When I finished, so when I ran across Kyrgyzstan, across the Tian Shan Mountains, I mean, that was, by, that was a huge level up. I think you should always raise the bar every time that you do something. Um, but I raised the bar, like, several notches for that one it was it was a big leap for me and when I got to that finish line I mean that was one of the most emotional finishes I've ever had I just had a full-on ugly cry in the streets of Osh I didn't even care like I just couldn't believe that me of all people had just become the first person to run across Kyrgyzstan I had just run a thousand kilometers I mean just in my wildest dreams I mean I have like fantasies of going back to my high school and telling them, guess what I did? And they'd be like, you, no way, not you. Um, and so that was, that was huge. I mean, that was kind of like a glass shattering moment of the you're tougher than you think lesson that it was just like, Oh my gosh. And it totally did change my life. Just that realization that I can do hard things that I'm capable that, you know, if I try really hard and I set goals and I work towards them, you know, that was, I'd love to capture and bottle that feeling and just have it all the time. It was, it was a huge high. Yeah, absolutely. So what's the best thing you've knitted? I can only knit toques. I've got nothing (laughs) else in my bag. Like I can do toques till the cows come home and I haven't learned how to make anything else. (laughs) (laughs) So you haven't made some sort of huge jump yet or anything? Oh, I just, I'm way too lazy for that. Do you know how long a jumper would take? (laughs) No way. Well, maybe after each expedition, you could do like like another set, sort of like 10 inch square of a jumper. That's why I knit is because I get home from these things and I'm too tired. Like I'm not able to go running because I have to do the recovery and I'm not very good at recovery. And so knitting is like something that I can sit still and do with my hands that doesn't, it's not drinking wine or running again. So it's like knitting is my distraction to get me through the recovery period. <laughs> If you could get a lovely drink and peruse over a map planning your next adventure, which part of the world would that be? Oh, man, it just I mean, this is one of my addictions. This is the way that I waste time is I just keep on looking at maps all the time. Like, do you ever just get lost looking at maps and realize that an hour or two have disappeared and you've planned an entire trip to a place that you'd never thought about before? And you're like, right, well, I'm pretty much ready to go to Pakistan. Like, I've done all the planning already. (laughs) Like. (laughs) So I do that all the time. Um, and yeah, Pakistan, I did say like Karakoram are, are drawing my eyes and quite a lot recently. Because of course you put the map on and you look at the terrain view and you go, hmm, there's definitely some really big mountains out that way. Maybe we should go there. So I think that's, but it, I mean, every time I was looking at Africa last night, I was looking at China two nights ago. Like, this is just what I do. This is my <laughs> really bad habit. <laughs> and then last question is, you know, where can we keep up to date with all of your adventures? The best place is probably Instagram, which is Jenny Tuff. Um, I have a YouTube channel and I'm terrible at updating it. So yeah, go to Instagram, Jenny Tuff. <laughs> well, Jenny, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. That was, that was great fun. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Chris. Such an incredible 
chat with Jenny there. She's a fantastic person and the wealth of knowledge just is so vast. So such a pleasure to have Jenny on and I really, really hope you enjoyed it as well. You can let me know what you think and I'd love to hear from you. My email address is btmtravelpod at gmail.com but I think it's now 100% of you just messaged me on Instagram. So go ahead and send me a message on there too. And also, while we're talking about ratings at the beginning, thank you so much as well to, to those of you sharing the podcast on Instagram and your stories and, and, and tagging me in posts. I really, really appreciate it. I got, I got put alongside a BBC and a National Geographic podcast the other day, so feeling very, very proud and, uh, and uh, very thankful to have people like you listening. So there you go. There's also a chance to still enter the uh, merchandise giveaway by just doing a very quick seven-question survey. I'm going to keep that open until 6 a.m., on next Friday when the next episode goes out. So you've got until next Friday to, to fill out some questions and have a chance of getting some merchandise. But there you go. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you need some episodes to listen to in the meantime, I recommend highly the episode of Anna Blackwell talking about Scandinavia and resilience, our episode with Emily Scott about pursuing happiness, mountains and adventure, and also our episode with Ian Finch, who recommended Jenny Tuff to come on the show about exploring cultures and wild places. I'll speak to you in next week's episode. <laughs>